Welcome to the Wellsteading Podcast. This is episode 138. It's September 13th, 2015. I'm your host, John Pugliano. I'm also the founder and money manager of investablewealth.com. In today's episode, I'm going to talk to you about a very important topic, and that's building a watch list. You see, we're currently in a market correction. Now, market corrections can be scary for people, particularly if you're a buy and hold strategist. Um, this is a time when you're, you know, crossing your fingers, hoping that the market doesn't go down anymore, and you're uh, waiting for the day when it gets back up to its previous highs. If you're a market timer or a swing trader like myself, you've already taken profits, you're in cash, and what you're looking for is opportunities. And that's why this time is critical for building a watch list. I'm going to talk about that in just a minute. I just want to preface this episode by saying that this week is going to be highly volatile. We have options, uh, triple expirations coming up on Friday. During the midweek, we have the Federal Reserve's Open Market Committee um, announcements coming out. So they'll probably do that conference on uh, that news press conference on Wednesday. That will most likely put some volatility in the markets for Thursday and Friday as well. So I think you're going to see a lot of volatility. I wouldn't be surprised at all to see somewhat of a relief rally. Uh, this is, you know, in my opinion, going to maybe be more of a sucker's rally. People are going to finally be happy that the Fed says something one way or the other, even though as I, you know, I beat it to a dead horse in the, the previous couple episodes about why this announcement of whether they will or won't raise interest rates by 25 basis points is totally insignificant, but the market thrives on insignificance. So short term, you may see a pop. Whether they raise or don't raise, I don't have a clue. If you want to keep your peace of mind, if you want to keep your senses about you this week, I would recommend just turning off all the media and not even watching it. If this market does bounce, remember, it could be a sucker's rally because this market has a great deal of a resistance when you get up around um, the high 1990s, certainly up to, to the 2000 level. That's not only a psychological level, but that's where a lot of resistance lies just because that's where previous lows had been at, that this market had disobeyed and broken through. Whenever you have that, those, those previous levels of support become resistance when you try and break through them. So I wouldn't be at all uh, surprised to see a relief rally or a sucker's rally where, it bounce, where the, the market bounces up from where we are now and gets close to that 1990-something, uh, 2000 mark, and then it falls apart again on some other bad news coming out of China or jobs report or, or whatever the press wants to manipulate and, and fluff that week. So just watch out for it. One comment I'll make about these areas of resistance. How many people out there in the audience, how many of you listening to me saying this right now, didn't sell earlier in the year and so you're sitting on losses right now and you're saying to yourself, when my money gets back to where it was, I'm taking my profits and I'm going to cash. That's a very common thought process among investors, particularly retail investors. They don't want to take a loss or they at least want to get out uh, back at what they feel is an acceptable level. And because investors come into these markets in waves, I mean, that's why we have uptrends that get fueled by more and more buying, more and more people start coming into the market. So a lot of people came into this market around that 2000 level in the S&P 500. These were people that felt that they'd, they'd missed the rally in, in uh, the previous 18 to 24 months. Again, that 2000 level, it's kind of a psychological barrier. People see the market going up above that level and they say, hey, I got to get in on this. You know, so they, they rush into the market and now the market has collapsed below that level. 
So one reason that there's resistance at that point is a lot of people are going to sell there to try and either take back their profits or get out even. That's how support and resistance works. Okay, enough said on that. Anyways, watch out this week. Expect a volatile market. Don't be surprised if we get some type of a relief rally. Personally, I'd like to see the market go down. We also have the Bank of Japan coming out. We know they're in recession over there. We know they need to devaluate their currency. If they come out with a strong statement on how they'll devaluate their currency, that will most likely uh, give a bounce to the U.S. dollar. It will probably give a bounce to the Japanese stock market. But for smart investors, what you have to think through when you hear that is you have to say to yourself, if this economy continues to be so bad that people have to keep devaluating their currency, that obviously is a harbinger of bad things to come. And so if we do see more devaluations, I think that would be a time for smart investors that haven't gotten out to get out. Because why stay in a market if the, if the global economy is slowing down and going into recession? There'll be times to buy in at a better price if, in fact, the global economy is going into recession. Now, we don't know that yet, but there are a lot of signs that are pointing to that. And what you need to remember is, for those of you that are saying, hey, fundamentals are strong, you know, the housing's good, job reports are okay, uh, corporations are still making money, they've, they're not making as much as they did, but profits are still acceptable, all that kind of thing. Yes, that's all true, but remember, stocks and the stock market and the stock indexes, they're forward-looking. Oftentimes, if not most times... The price of a stock will collapse before its fundamentals do. That's because people in the know get out ahead of time. And all the analysts and the people that are covering these stocks and the people that you think are going to tell you the straight scoop, they continue to toe the party line and say everything looks right. And then the insiders on Wall Street get out and the retail investors are left holding the bag. That's just my thoughts, only my opinions. Take it for what it's worth. Remember in this podcast, I can't offer you specific advice. I don't give you recommendations. I'm just talking out loud. I'm giving you some of the rationale as to why I make the trades and I do the things that I do. It's free advice. It's worth every penny you're paying for it. Speaking of free advice, for those of you that haven't signed up for my blog updates over at investablewealth.com, it's easy to do that. You plug in your email address, hit the subscribe button. If you decide you don't want it, you can just unsubscribe. You don't get spammed. You don't get any BS advertisements. All you'll receive is the notice and the, the article that I post whenever I do my blog updates. All my updates are on there for the last, I don't know, maybe 24 months or something. So you can scan through the archives there and, and see the quality of the type of material I put out. If it's something you're interested in, go ahead and sign up for it. Be advised that usually it's easier for me to create a blog post over there than it is to do a podcast. So if something happens quickly in the markets, like I decide to get in and jump into a particular stock, I'm most likely going to announce it there before I get around to creating a podcast. So that's most likely the quickest way to uh, to have access to my opinions. For those of you that asked, uh, you know, why am I not on Twitter? Why am I not on Facebook? All those kind of things. One reason is I'm too busy to do all that. I'm running my firm. I'm doing my investment stuff. I do the podcast and I do the blog updates. It's really a, a labor of love. It's in, in a twisted way to me. It's kind of an extension of my ham radio hobby. Those of you that are in the hobby will understand what I mean by that. But it's a free service. I do that for the people that I just can't afford to take on as, as uh, individual clients. But as far as then putting that stuff out on Twitter and everything else, that's not my style. That's not my personality. It doesn't fit into the business model that I've created. And personally, I don't see any reason to build traffic over at Twitter or over at Facebook 
when I can have people come to my own website, why should I send them to another website? It just doesn't make any sense to me. For people that don't want to go through the simple subscription process on my website, which just entails putting in an email address, you know, if you don't want to do that, then to me, why would I want to share my information with you in a timely manner? But for those of you that asked, I have no plans to be on Twitter or Facebook. It just doesn't fit into my business model and my communication plans. So enough of all that. Let's get on to today's topic. During this period of market correction, you should be building a watch list. Remember, as I've mentioned in previous podcasts, go back and listen to them if you haven't heard it about my thoughts on a correction. A correction is a good thing. A correction is called a correction because that's exactly what it is. The market dynamics got out of whack. They were out of frequency. The market got too expensive. It had to pull back and it had to correct. Right now, the market isn't at a discount, but it is probably trading around fair value. It all depends on future earnings. Now, there are those that are saying that we're going to see a big decline in future earnings. There are those out there that are saying that no, future earnings are just fine. Well, you know what? None of us can predict the future. So that's where the element of risk comes in. That's why we're investing. And and if we're right, we get paid big profits for that. And consequently, if you're wrong, you lose your money. There's risk involved in this. It isn't an exact science. But one thing that you can bank on is that the correction is a good thing. It brought the market down to more reasonable valuations. So don't think of this as a bad thing. Think of this as an opportunity. So let's talk about this watch list. And and notice that I'm saying that this is a watch list. It's not a buy list. At the end of the day, when you get ready to pull the trigger and you start buying stocks or ETFs or mutual funds or whatever it is that you invest in, you'll have a very narrow list. You'll be investing in maybe anywhere from one to maybe 20 different stocks or ETFs or mutual funds. And when I say one here, I never would encourage someone to put all their money into one stock. However, I think it's rational if it fits into your strategy to put all your money into one major index fund like a total market fund or the S&P 500 because you're getting broad diversification there. Even if it's just invested in the U.S. market, you're still getting a lot of overseas exposure. All the companies aren't going to go bankrupt at one time. And yes, of course, we know that if there's a financial meltdown like we saw in 2008, those indexes can come down, you know, 40 or 50 percent. That's true, but if you own an individual stock, they can go to zero. So it isn't that there isn't any risk in buying one major index. It's just that if you buy a large one like that, your risk will be limited. And for those of you out there that are really headstrong and broad diversification, go back and look at your portfolios in 2008, particularly during the worst part in the the fall of 2008, the last quarter there. Pretty much everything was down. Gold was down. S&P 500 was down, technology stocks were down, everything got hit. The only safe place to really be was in the U.S. dollar, and even that was taking a hit against some foreign currencies. So the moral to that lesson is, is that when things fall apart, they fall apart everywhere. It's very hard to find things that are not correlated with the economy that's linked together so, so much as it is. And yes, as we got into you know 2009 and things, gold prices did skyrocket and did move up very well, but so did the stock market. It just depended if you were willing to take the chance and get into it. So let's talk about our watch list. I'm going to talk about three areas or three segments that I think that you can be looking at to be building your watch list. 
Initially, your watch list may be very large. It, it may consist of individual sectors instead of uh, individual stocks. You know, you just may be watching certain sectors of the economy and saying you think that that's going to be a growth area. And so you put that down, you start watching that sector. As you see that that's stabilized and that's growing, then maybe you dig in there and you start mining out specific stocks that you want to invest in or you want to find exchange-traded funds or mutual funds that focus on that particular area. Okay, so I'm not going to get into all those individual nuts and bolts in this episode. I think that you can figure that part out on your own. But the three broad areas I want to talk about that are a great place to start looking for places to put your money into as we come out of the correction and into a recovery, uh, these three areas are the best of the best, the worst of the worst, and dividend-paying stocks. Okay, so those three things are what I'm going to talk about. I'll explain them as we go. So the best of the best. You might want to invest in these type stocks because the school of thought goes this way. As we went into a correction, as you know, the stock market came down, say 10 or 15%, well, there was this certain group of stocks that although they did go through a pullback, maybe they only came down 1% or 5% or 3%, something like that, when the whole index came down 10%. So yes, they were affected by the correction, but they were really the best performers. They were the best of the best. They were the strongest stocks. They took the least hit as far as price goes. You have to remember that whenever we're in a market trend, whenever that trend is down or if that trend is up, 70% or more of all stocks follow that trend. Okay, It wouldn't be a trend if that wasn't happening. So that means that when we're in an uptrend, the good stocks go up, but some bad stocks go up as well just because everything gets lifted, right? The tide rises all boats. It's the same thing on the way down. When we're in a negative trend, of course, the bad stocks go down the worst, but the good stocks pull back and they go down as well. So the best of the best theory is that when you're coming out of a correction, you should be looking for those good, solid stocks that were only slightly affected because most likely as we go into a recovery, those stocks will recover the best and go on and make new highs the quickest. Well, that's a pretty good theory. It doesn't always work. But buying strength is always a good strong point in the market. That's generally where the momentum is. So your watch list should contain at least some stocks that are the best of the best. I won't go into detail in this episode as to how you would find those stocks. But you know, just off the top of my head, you can think of some of those stocks that have, have held up pretty well during this correction. And they were the stocks that were leading the uh, the technologies all this summer. You heard me do some previous episodes saying that if you look at the NASDAQ or the NASDAQ 100, there's really only, you know, four or five, a handful of stocks that are doing really well, while the rest of the index is doing pretty lousy. Well, those same stocks have still held up pretty well, even though they did come down. But if you look at Facebook, Google, um, probably Netflix, I'm doing these off the top of my head. I don't have the charts in front of me right now. But those leaders are most likely going to remain leaders as we go into a recovery. So those growth stocks that have held up, the best of the best, that might be a good place for you to look as we go into the recovery. Okay, the next area, the worst of the worst. Now, this is 180 degrees out of phase with what I just talked about, about buying strength and the best of the best. But you have to remember that everything in Wall Street is just a theory. It isn't an exact science. And while it's true that you should focus on the good growth stocks, you should focus on the stocks with the most strength, it is equally true that all stocks go through a cycle. And inevitably, in every cycle, things hit a bottom. And the, the worst industry sector or the worst stocks that maybe had performed that way, they were just horrible for one or two years. Well, they tend to be the outperformers, you know, two or three years later. 
And it's because of this life cycle. It's because everything goes in, in currents. They ebb and they flow. They go through peaks and they go through troughs. When everybody buys into the strong stocks, they get overbought. Their valuations get too high. And what happens? We have a correction. Well, that's where the overall market's in right now. It's correcting. So at some point in the market cycle, there are also those worst of the worst stocks, the stocks that are in in the industry sectors that have been beat up the most. At some point, they will turn around and they will go on to make all-time new highs. So your watch list should also include some stocks that are in the worst of the worst category. But again, you are looking for strength, okay? When you're going bottom fishing... You don't want to look at a stock that's on the verge of bankruptcy. And in my opinion, that would be a stock like Sears. I mean, Sears has a lot of problems. It's had a lot of problems for decades. It's in an industry that's you know, the, the brick and mortar retail side of things are really challenged. As the brick and mortar retail environment eventually gets better, a lot of stocks will benefit from that. I find it hard to believe that a stock like Sears would benefit though because they're they're beyond the worst of the worst they're just really really a weak company and again this is just my opinion go do your own research determine it for yourself so if i were to invest in the brick and mortar retail segment rather than buy sears i would buy walmart okay and for those of you that know in full disclosure here i already do own walmart so walmart is not on my wish list it's on my hold list i'm currently in that position but if i didn't own walmart it would definitely be on my wish list at this point. So look at other areas of the economy that have been beat up, but yet there are uh, sectors and companies that are providing the economy with products and services that consumers need and want, and those needs and wants are not going to go away. And so what you're really trying to do there is pick the, the best house in the bad neighborhood. You're looking for the cleanest dirty shirt, you know, whatever analogy you want to use. I like to say the tallest midget, but that's probably not politically correct, but I think that's a good analogy. That's what you're looking for when you're looking for the worst of the worst. So we know that commodity prices have been down. Obviously, oil prices have been depressed. That's hurt the energy sector. A company that would be a very strong contender in the worst of the worst right now would be something like ExxonMobil. Now, as you've heard me say just in the most recent episodes, and I've said a lot in my blog post, At some point, it will make a lot of sense to be buying commodity stocks and commodity sectors and oil companies. I don't think that time is yet. All things being equal, when that time comes, most likely you will find ExxonMobil on my watch list. One key thing to remember here in terms of when you're looking at the worst of the worst, and I I just said it, but maybe I said it too quick and some of you will gloss over. You want to focus on industries and indexes and companies that are providing products and services that are going to be needed and wanted in the future. And so obviously food production, oil production, you know, technology, these are all things, uh, medical services, these are all things that are universal. We know that we needed them yesterday, we're going to need them tomorrow. What you should be careful of when you're looking for the, for, you know, the best in that worst of the worst category is you don't want to catch a falling knife. On Wall Street, we use the analogy catching a falling knife. Imagine if you're dropping a big steak knife or a big kitchen knife and you try and catch it. Well, the only place you're going to catch it without cutting your hand is if you catch it perfectly on the handle. That's a very hard thing to do. That's why they call it catching a falling knife. 
And when I make this reference, I'm referring to specific stocks more so than industries, because if something is an industry, it's probably not going away. Brick and mortar retailing, although it may be going through some bad times right now, it's not going away. The housing market in 2008, it fell apart, but obviously at some point you know that people need to buy houses. And so you knew that that industry overall would come back. There could be individual companies, you know, home builders in that segment that are going bankrupt, but the industry overall will come back. And so when you're catching a falling knife, it's not so much worrying about the sector. What you need to be careful with is which individual stocks you purchase. And so to further illustrate this point, I would say when you're looking at the worst of the worst, Focus on those strong industry groups and then look at the leaders in those industry groups. Those are the stocks that you'd most likely want to put on your watch list and look for a good time to buy into those. The ones that you don't want to purchase are hyped up industries or specifically hyped up companies. For example, and again, this is just my opinion. I'm just throwing this out as an example. Stocks like GoPro, stocks like 3D Systems, stocks like Twitter. I think they've been drastically overhyped. And you can see, in fact, if you go over to investablewealth.com a few posts ago, I did do um, a blog post on 3D systems. For those of you that aren't familiar, that was a, a really sweetheart, very much favored, very much hyped 3D printing stock. And I have a chart on there showing how that price just collapsed. I also have a chart on there in a different blog post, I think that might, which might have been maybe the most recent one that I've done about Brazil. And if you remember a few years ago, everybody was enamorated with Brazil, the BRICS nations. Brazil, Russia, India, China, South Africa, those were just the growing economies. Well, I have a chart on there showing the Brazil economy. It's, it's just collapsed. So things get overhyped. And in particular, individual stocks often get overhyped. So when something like a 3D systems, when it collapses, it may never recover. Okay. And again, I'm just, again, using this as an illustration, I'm not saying that it's never going to recover, but when you look at a stock that has its price collapse, like 80%, it seldom, if ever goes on to make those numbers up, particularly if it's a, a small, obs obscure stock in a week or in an overhyped industry, again, like 3D printing or like Twitter. Okay, just because Facebook did really well, just because LinkedIn is doing fairly well in that social media group, it doesn't mean that all stocks under that umbrella of social media are going to do well. And I think Twitter fits into that category where it's just hard to monetize, right? It isn't that Twitter isn't a good system. It isn't that Twitter isn't going to maybe be around in five years. In fact, I think it's highly likely that Twitter will be bought by somebody else, right? A Microsoft, an Apple, a Google, they'll probably buy Twitter. But the valuations that were placed on Twitter a year ago were just astronomical. They didn't make any sense because it's very hard to monetize that platform where it was much easier to monetize something like LinkedIn or Facebook just because of the nature of the way it's delivered. But everybody in the media uses Twitter and it's really good for that type of quick, fast communication. But since everybody in the media used it, they talked about it all the time and they hyped it up. And in my opinion, that's why a stock like that would get overpriced. So I wouldn't buy that on its low point or on its dip thinking that it's going to recover because just to do the math for you, uh, and this is important for you to know, when something drops in price, it has to work even harder just to break even, right? We've talked about this before. If you had a stock that had a price of $100 and it drops 80%, that means it's now selling for $20. Well, for it to go from $20 back up to $100, that's not an 80% increase. It dropped 80%. But to get back up to $100, 
Well, do the math. It would take a 400% increase just to get back to its old previous high. Okay, so that's why it's very unlikely that when these overhyped stocks collapse 80%, they seldom go back to their previous highs. And if they do, it takes, you know, years or, or probably more likely decades. Microsoft has never gotten back to the high that it reached back in the dot-com bubble over 15 years ago. So it's just something for you to think about when you're dealing with the worst of the worst. Be very careful, focus on out-of-favor sectors, and then look at the industry leaders within those sectors. For example, right now, you know, these worst sectors or segments we're talking about, obviously the commodities, the energy sector, the steel business, um, aluminum, mining, coal mining in particular, that's just been a disaster. Uh, but also some things like consumer electronics, you know, that hasn't done very well. Uh, transportations have, uh, stocks have been, have been, uh, underperforming. Uh, but kind of an obscure one here that I've been looking at, the dairy section of the food industry, that hasn't done very well. So look for these broad sectors and then pick out the strongest industry leaders there. Those are ones that might want to fit into the worst of the worst category that you want to put on your watch list. Okay, and then the last segment or section that I want to talk about that I think is important to draw on for your watch list would be dividend-paying stocks. Dividend-paying stocks are always the greatest thing, the best thing you can own if you can buy them at the right price. And since during a correction and a downturn, the price of everything gets reset, that's a fantastic time to look at buying dividend-paying stocks. Dividend-paying stocks are good to own for one reason, by the you know, as the name would imply, they pay a dividend. So just by owning them, you'll be receiving, you know, 1%, 1.5%, 3% dividend payment over the period of the year. Generally, it's paid every quarter. And so that's good news, obviously. The other good news is, is that generally dividend-paying stocks are strong stocks. They're industry, uh, they're, they're strong and secure, and they're leaders in their particular industry segment. They've been around a long time. They have a long history. It's easy to track them. A lot of analysts follow them. There's a lot of data on them. They're generally highly liquid, so you can sell them easily if you want to get out of them. So that's all important. And then finally, if you're buying them at the right price, then you're not only going to be collecting that dividend every year, but you're also going to be getting appreciation. You know, the, the key point is, is that you don't want to buy a dividend paying stock when it's at an all time high. You want to buy it when it's somewhere, you know, below its maybe 50 or 200 day moving average. So that over time, you'll not only be collecting that dividend, but if you hold it for, you know, years, you can sell it at a substantial profit as well. So I, I definitely like dividend-paying stocks. I think a correction is always a good time to see what stocks are on sale and, you know, who can you add to your portfolio. Again, I'm not going to give you specific recommendations, but, you know, by point of illustration, there have been a lot of big blue-chip stocks that have been beat up lately, but not all of them are necessarily cheap. Just because they've been beat up doesn't mean that they're cheap. You have to look at their valuation. You look at how, you have to look at and see how much their current price is based on what their future earnings are estimated at. But for example, AT&T, its price has come down quite a bit. I don't think AT&T is in danger of going bankrupt anytime soon. They currently have uh, an astronomical dividend yield right now. I think it's close to 6%. It's like 57 5.8% dividend. That's a phenomenal dividend yield. And yet their valuation is is still fairly reasonable. I believe their forward valuation on AT&T is something like um, you know, 13 maybe 14 times earnings. 
So it has a historically lower valuation on it, and it's definitely a substantial lower valuation than what the general market has. It's probably not in danger of going out of business. It's paying a huge dividend. That might be a stock from the dividend section that you'd want to put on your watch list. One thing you want to be careful of, and this goes back to the analogy we used with, with catching the falling knife, you do have to ask yourself, why have investors placed such a premium on the AT&T dividend? You know, why is it paying over 5% when the average dividend is nowhere near that high? I mean, what type of risks are baked into that stock right now? Who knows something that you don't know? Maybe there's going to be a further pullback and correction in these telecommunication companies. Maybe the experts, uh, the people that really follow these things know something that we don't know. That's what you have to keep in mind. But you have to also look at that dividend and say, wow, that's really phenomenal. Traveler's Insurance is another Dow Jones big blue chip stock. It's well off, you know, 10% from its high. It pays a dividend of about 2.5%, which you can see is substantially less than AT&T. That's why I made such a big deal about AT&T's uh, dividend. Uh, but Traveler's is trading at something like uh, under a, a 10 times earnings on, on future earnings, maybe like a, a 9, 9.5 times future earnings. That's a large discount compared to where the overall market is. From the little bit I know about Traveler's Insurance, I'm not an expert on that. I don't claim to be, but it doesn't look like it's a stock that's necessarily going out of business tomorrow. So again, that might be something you'd want to put on your watch list. And finally, I'll close out this episode by mentioning Goldman Sachs. Goldman Sachs is always my my go-to stock when things get really bad, and they haven't gotten that bad yet. But Goldman Sachs is one of those stocks that has definitely has strong crony capitalist ties, right? I mean, it is really intertwined uh, with its executives and members in the government and members in the Federal Reserve banking system, and uh, they move like a revolving door, right? People move in and out of Federal Reserve or government banking positions to executive positions at Goldman and then back and forth. So I say this somewhat tongue in cheek, but you got to figure when the blood is running in the streets and the whole world is worried about a financial collapse, that's probably a good time to buy Goldman Sachs stock because unless the entire government system collapses, Goldman Sachs is probably going to come back because they're just such a crony capitalist company. And again, I'm saying this somewhat tongue-in-cheek. I don't want to get death threats or get sued by Goldman Sachs for defamation, although they'd probably relish that reputation. In any case, Goldman Sachs right now trading at something like a nine times earnings. They pay close to a 1.5% dividend. Certainly, if I had a watch list that, that was looking at that particular uh, financial sector of the economy, Goldman Sachs would most likely you know, be on a hypothetical list that I would create. Now, I just want to end this podcast by reminding you, the things I talked about weren't specific recommendations, and I'm not saying this part to fulfill any legal obligation. The point that I want to get across to you is, is that I was just throwing out names of stocks that could be out of favor, they could be the best of the best, they could be good dividend-paying stocks, but, but you have to remember, I'm a swing-trading person that believes in market timing. And so just because a stock like Goldman Sachs may pay a decent dividend and may have a very low um, price to earnings ratio right now, you always have to factor in market momentum and timing. So in this podcast, we didn't talk about that. We didn't talk about the specific chart action. And I'm strongly suggesting that you take that into consideration because I would. So just because Goldman Sachs may be a great stock to buy in general over time, it doesn't mean that tomorrow when the market opens up on September 14th, 2015, that that's the perfect time. 
In fact, I just pulled up the Goldman Sachs chart. As I look at its chart over the last few months, it very much looks like it's mimicked the overall market performance. The low that it hits on the week of the, the major pullback, the flash crash, uh, August 24th, 25th, the low that it hit that week took it down to its long-term support levels, support levels that, that go back well over a year. So that does show some type of uh, reliable technical strength that you can look at. It's recovered from those lows and, again, very much mimicking the overall action of the, of the overall S&P 500. It is sitting right now at resistance that was uh, first logged in back about a year ago almost exactly. So it is at a major resistance point. It's got to get above that. And then it has a, at least two or three more very strong re resistance levels that it needs to get above. Again, very much just like the overall market. So from a chart standpoint, I wouldn't necessarily say the technical support is there uh, to justify getting into Goldman Sachs at this time. If there is a major pullback, again, if there's major panic sets in, if the blood starts running in the streets and you see Goldman Sachs stock dropping down around $150 a share, that would put it at a very interesting multiple and uh, we'll have to come back and talk if, if something like that happens. But there it is. There you have it. That's my thoughts on what you should be doing during this correction. You should be building that watch list. Take advantage of this opportunity. Do your best to profit from it. So as always, this is John Pugliano, and until the next episode, I'm wishing you the very best of returns.